The possibility of life on Mars has long been of great interest in astrobiology circles, largely because of the red planet's similarities to our own planet. Whether there ever was or ever can be life on Mars, which is more than 95 million miles away, remains a mystery. But scientific study has nudged us closer and closer to that idea, and yes, Mars probably had life at one point. Whether it still does seems less likely, though far from impossible. Welcome to the Abstract Podcast from Inverse. I'm Tanya Bustos, your host. Our first story is about SpaceX CEO Elon Musk's ambitious plans to build a city on Mars by 2050. However, in order to bring his vision to life, SpaceX needs to figure out one key challenge first. Orbital refueling in space for the long journey. Could perfecting gas stations for spaceships help SpaceX come one step closer to a city on Mars? Our second story attempts to answer another crucial question. Was there ever life on Mars to begin with? The latest research says scientists are finally coming closer to figuring out Mars' water history, which always includes the somewhat likely scenario that if Mars had water, Mars had life. This is The Abstract, a look at the latest scientific discoveries and technology innovations from the reporters at Inverse. In each episode, we explore a single theme through two different stories. Up now, how Elon Musk plans to turn Mars into a city by 2050. wanted to climb the mountains of Mars. We built this city. Get your ass to Mars. We built this city on Mars. That's what Elon Musk hopes to say by 2050. The SpaceX CEO has long had huge plans for human life on the red planet. He, of course, plans to send one million people to Mars in 30 years, where they can then colonize a city. To get us there, SpaceX has been working on the Starship, a fully reusable rocket designed to transport humans to Mars and beyond key to the Starship's success, orbital refilling, which will allow the rocket to refuel in space at a space fuel station of sorts, and then it can continue its mission to the Red Planet. Here at the 67th International Astronautical Conference in Guadalajara, Mexico, Elon Musk explained how crucial this refueling is to his Mars mission. Refueling in orbit is, is one of the essential elements of this. With, without refueling in orbit, you would have a half-order of magnitude impact roughly on on the cost. So not, ref- not refilling in orbit would mean a, a 500% roughly increase in the cost per ticket. It also allows us to, to build a smaller vehicle and uh, lower the development cost, although this vehicle is quite big, but it would be much harder to build something that's five to 10 times the size. SpaceX has been working with NASA to research how to best refuel rockets in space for some time, and SpaceX Dragon capsules, which power SpaceX and NASA's resupply missions, have been quietly helping SpaceX build up its refueling expertise. These Dragon missions have sent up thousands of pounds of equipment for third parties to test their ideas in microgravity. Perfecting these missions will turn the 60s-era dream of refueling a rocket in space into a reality, paving the way to the city of Mars. Let's get more from Inverse staff writer Mike Brown. Welcome back, Mike. Thank you. So this uh, city on Mars, first off, you know, we've, we've long known 
Elon Musk has had these big, big picture goals for humans on Mars. The Starship rocket will get us there. That's step one. Also key are these existing resupply missions. Can you talk to me about this orbital refueling, you know, refueling in space and how important it is for the firm to tackle this issue? Yeah, so orbital refueling basically enables um, SpaceX to build a smaller rocket to travel to other places like Mars, uh, where it plans to uh, one day build a city on the planet by 2050. So the idea, if you think about how a car works, is probably the uh, best way of thinking about it. Uh, If you were going on a road trip, you could either design a car to uh, hold all of the fuel that you would need to complete the journey, or you could design a car that you can refuel along the way and that means that you could have a smaller tank and it would be a more manageable car. You could you know, fit all your things for the beach and everything in the back of the car, etc. And it, it would be a much more practical vehicle. So it's a similar sort of logic uh, that applies here. The Starship that uh, SpaceX wants to use to uh, send people to Mars one day consists of a uh, called a super heavy booster and a uh, Starship ship. So the booster would help push the ship out of uh, the Earth's atmosphere. And then uh, SpaceX's plan is that uh, you could then refuel the Starship to complete the journey. And that means that uh, you would need a uh, much smaller vehicle. I think Elon Musk suggested that it would be about five to ten times smaller than uh, if you filled it up with fuel on Earth. So how has SpaceX been working with NASA to perfect this? Is that where these, you know, dragon capsules come in? Yeah, so the interesting thing about this is um, it, you, on the surface, it doesn't seem uh, directly relevant. Uh, SpaceX and NASA are working together on this problem of orbital refueling. They've announced a partnership in this area. But Musk said that uh, the commercial resupply missions that uh, SpaceX has been completing with NASA also help with this problem. So these are a series of missions where uh, SpaceX sends a capsule to the International Space Station filled with thousands of pounds of cargo that's then used by the astronauts on board to complete scientific experiments. It comes back to Earth. Uh, SpaceX has uh, completed around 20, say around 20, because one of them failed in 2015. But uh, This has been uh, an ongoing project for a a good number of years now, Uh, recently completed the uh, CRS-20 mission. Um, And Musk claims that this helps uh, SpaceX achieve the uh, orbital refueling idea because they now have experience with uh, berthing and docking with this space station. So if you imagine like the Starship in space, you want to refuel it, um, you have to make sure you bring them together, it connects properly, etc. So what Musk is saying here is that uh, it's two very similar problems that you're trying to connect this capsule to the space station. It all brings us that much closer to this city on Mars, perfecting all of this. And, you know, these Dragon capsule missions, obviously key here, and there's plans to expand on them. Now, specifically, there's the Crew Dragon and the Dragon XL. Can you talk to me a little bit about those and and the plans to just take this further into the realm of possibility? Yeah, I mean, the Crew Dragon is uh, probably the one that everybody is going to be hearing about because... uh, This is very exciting. This is when NASA is going to be sending up uh, two astronauts to the International Space Station. So uh, it's going to be SpaceX trying out a new uh, manned capsule design. It's going to be NASA bringing back manned missions to uh, the United States. At the moment, they're using uh, the Russian agency Roscosmos's uh, rockets 
to ferry astronauts to and from the space station after they ended the uh, space shuttle program in 2011. So these two astronauts are going to be uh, sort of pioneering this uh, new technology for SpaceX and potentially kickstarting this whole new era for how NASA sends uh, astronauts to the space station. But the other one we mentioned there is the Dragon XL. That one's a little bit further off into the future, but that's also very exciting as well because that's going to be working with NASA's Lunar Gateway, which is going to be a uh, spaceship that's supporting uh, moon missions as part of the Artemis program. So uh, this involves uh, NASA returning humans to the moon again. The first woman is going to be uh, setting foot on the moon. It's uh, So it's two very exciting projects, neither of which uh, seem on the surface, as we say, directly related to uh, orbital refueling. But as Musk suggests, this is uh, maybe helping them develop that technology. Right, right. And again, one step closer to Mars. Ah. Uh- Really interesting stuff. Listeners can check out Mike's piece at inverse.com. Mike, thanks as always. Thank you very much. Cheers. The prospect of any previous life on Mars is a concept that continues to intrigue science. However, up now, the study on how Martian water may provide a key piece to the puzzle of life on Mars. more we observe Mars, the more information we're getting. But we still have this question of, did life arise on Mars once? And can we find out? And we have lots of intriguing clues about that story. Still, that begs the question about if life started on Mars some three and a half billion years ago, did any survive? And that's a fascinating question, one that's going to take some time to answer. But technologically, we can answer. We're getting there. That was John Grunsfeld astronaut and associate administrator of NASA's Science Mission Directorate in Washington. He says our quest on Mars has been to follow the water in our search for life in the universe. We're on it. Mars is, of course, a dry, desolate planet these days, devoid of any life that we know of, at least. But billions of years ago, Mars may have been a wet world of warmth engulfed in a thick atmosphere. Scientists are still trying to piece together that Martian history in order to understand exactly what happened to all that water. But in order to understand how Mars changed, scientists first need to answer an even bigger question. How water got to the planet in the first place. Enter Black Beauty. Not that one, this one. In 2011, we found a shiny black meteorite from Mars in Northwest Africa. We named it Black Beauty for its mesmerizing qualities and essentially got to work analyzing some Martian rocks. This piece of Mars that was found in the Sahara Desert ultimately led researchers to a crucial clue to the history of the planet. A March 2020 study in the journal Nature Geoscience shed light on the findings and provided us a new discovery, which is this. There were likely two different sources of water on Mars during its early history. And here we thought the red planet just had a single global ocean. Back to the old drawing board. Marvin, the Martian, anyone? After the research team analyzed the two Martian meteorites they had to work with, the Black Beauty and another one called the Allen Hills, this Martian rock, aptly named, was found in the Allen Hills in Antarctica in December 1984. With these two rocks, the team was able to piece together Mars's water history through a chemical analysis of samples in which they looked for hydrogen isotopes. 
More on that a little later. But the fact that Martian water may have come from two different sources points to an entirely different origin story for the water on Mars. Does that lead us any closer to the answers we're looking for? Martians. And how could it affect upcoming missions, such as NASA's Perseverance rover in the search for life on the Red Planet? Inverse staff writer Pesant Rebier has all the details and is here to help sort them out for us. Pesant, how's it going? Thanks for having me again. Of course. So what seems to get scientists so into this idea of studying this water history? I mean, is there anything more exciting than Martians? Nope. <laughs> but yeah, basically, we scientists have this idea that at some point during its early history, scientists believed that Mars was actually a wet planet. So we need to kind of reconstruct the history of water to find out how water got there in the first place. And as with most things, you know, you need to start at the very beginning and in trying to figure out how water did get there in the first place, we have these two meteorites from Mars to play with, right? And that's a simple way to put it. But in terms of finding that path to the beginning, how do we learn about water on Mars by these sample meteorites? Right. So on Earth, when you analyze the rocks that we have here on Earth, you'll find a pretty much standard ratio of hydrogen in the rocks, like a ratio of light hydrogen and heavy hydrogen. And that kind of uh, relates back to the ocean water that we have here on Earth. So uh, when we're looking at these Martian samples, we're sort of looking for the same thing. We're also analyzing the ratio of light hydrogen to heavy hydrogen to find out if it correlates to the water on Mars. So what did this new study tell us about what we didn't know previously? How did the study get scientists to kind of scratch their heads? Did it or did it confuse them? Did we make progress? A little of both, as is often the case. <laughs> no, it's good. It's progress, definitely. It set them on the right track because... Well, the results showed that the Martian samples were kind of all over the place. They were not consistent at all. Some had more heavy hydrogen, some had more light hydrogen. So based on that, the study kind of suggests that, you know, instead of having one kind of global source of water, Mar like Earth does, Mars has two sources of water on the planet, or sort of had two sources of water on the planet. So how does this kind of shake up everything we knew? Is it back to the drawing board or... I mean, like everything with astronomy, this is, you know, it's a hypothesis at this point, but it, this hypothesis kind of challenges how we think Mars may have formed in the first place, because generally um, planets form from material like dust, gas, and rock sort of coming together to form like a little baby planetary body called a planetesimal. And then it, that turns into like a full-grown planet. So it goes from like a little baby fetus planet to like a full-grown planet. And that's kind of how Earth formed. That's how other planets in the solar system formed. But because uh, the study suggests that Mars had two sources of water in the beginning, so now scientists are suggesting that maybe it formed from two separate planetesimals coming together and forming one planet. Does this change how we go about studying Mars, planning trip to Mars, and it, et cetera? I'm assuming um, we can take what we learned and figure out how to best do that. I mean, definitely. Now that we have this like different origin story for water on Mars, now we kind of have a better idea of what to look for when we go to the Red Planet. I mean, there's a... Um, the Perseverance rover is launching this summer to the Red Planet and it's collecting uh, samples from Mars to look for signs of habitability. So now we can like sort of narrow down our search and have a better idea of what to look for on Mars. That's good. I mean, uh, big plans to get there. So every little bit helps, I'm sure. Um, really fascinating look at uh, you know something that excites many of us. So, <laughs> Pacent, thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. 
Head to Inverse.com to read more about the history of Mars and its prospects for the future. You can click on the link in the show notes for that story and everything else we talked about today. If you agree that science and facts matter more than ever, give us a rating and review on iTunes to help more people find The Abstract and other podcasts like it. New episodes of The Abstract are released three times a week. You can find old episodes and new original reporting on science, innovation, culture, and entertainment at Inverse.com. Look for The Abstract Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast app you use. For Inverse, I'm Tanya Bustos. Thanks for listening.